0: Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy.
1: And this should should not just be confusing to you, but it should be eye-opening and alarming that that rates are over 100%. I'm
0: your host, Alan Weil. Skilled nursing facilities provide long-term residential care as well as shorter-term care after an inpatient hospital stay. The latter, which is often referred to as post-acute care, is often covered by Medicare. But Medicare spending on skilled nursing has grown rapidly, from about $12 billion in 2001 to $29 billion in 2016. That makes it a target for people concerned about the Medicare budget. At the same time, we have longstanding concerns about the quality of care in nursing homes, a topic that tragically returned to the spotlight, given the large share of COVID-19 deaths that occurred among nursing home residents and their workers. The March 2021 issue of Health Affairs includes two papers related to nursing home costs and quality, one focusing on therapies like occupational and speech therapy provided to residents and the other looking at turnover among nursing home staff. David Grabowski, a professor at Harvard Medical School is an author on both of these papers. He's published extensively on the topic of nursing home quality, and that's our subject for the conversation today. Dr. Grabowski, welcome to A Health Podacy.
1: Great. Thanks, Alan. I'm I'm delighted to be here and look forward to our discussion.
0: So you've done so much work in this area, um, but not everyone's familiar with skilled nursing facilities or nursing homes. Just tell us a little bit as background. Who do they serve? What services do people get when their patient's there? Uh, Just give us the primer on uh, nursing home care.
1: Sure. Uh, Nursing homes actually serve two very different populations. As you suggested in the intro. They do serve these individuals leaving the hospital uh, that are receiving post-acute care services. These individuals would typically be in a nursing home for three to four weeks. Uh, They would receive a lot of therapy, and then the hope is that they would be discharged home. And as you noted, the dominant payer of those services is Medicare. On the other side, we have individuals that are going to be long-stay residents, typically spending the remainder of their lives in a nursing home. For these individuals, uh, they're receiving uh, not necessarily therapy like those short-stayers. They're they're largely receiving uh, assistance with activities of daily living, like bathing and dressing and toileting. And for these individuals, Medicaid is the dominant payer of those services. Obviously, state Medicaid programs are setting the rates on a state-by-state basis. But generally speaking, Medicaid is not a very generous payer of services, whereas Medicare, uh, for that short-stay care, is a very generous payer of of, of care. And then, although it's been shrinking over time, we do have a few individuals still remaining in nursing homes that are paying privately or out of pocket. There's very little private long-term care insurance. So for those long-stay residents, it's largely Medicaid with a little bit of private. And then for those short-stay residents, it's, it's Medicare footing the bill.
0: So you bring these really quite different populations together into a setting. The finances, this blending of some Medicare, or some Medicaid, maybe a little uh, private pay, uh, makes it complicated to figure out both how to cover the costs, uh, but also to um, make sure that you have enough to to provide a quality experience. Um, the two papers that you have in the March issue use a new data set that has uh, really interesting implications for quality. Just tell us uh, what it is that you were able to look at in those two papers.
1: Sure. So historically, uh, we've always been very interested in monitoring staffing in nursing homes. Staffing accounts for about two-thirds of all nursing home spending. I like to say that a, a nursing home is only as good as its staff. That's the most important factor towards predicting high-quality nursing home care. Historically, we've had to rely on self-reported uh, staffing by the facility. In uh, federal data, there would be a two-week look-back period, and basically the, the, the facility would, re- would report how much staffing they had in those prior two weeks. Uh, Alan, you can imagine uh, there's a lot of noise in those data. And indeed, we have a a health affairs paper from two years ago showing, not surprisingly, facilities tended to over-report those those measures. What's been really wonderful is over the last several years, uh, the federal government has invested in what's called the payroll-based journal. Data system. Uh, The acronym, and someone must have been hungry at at CMS when they came up with this PBJ. So uh, uh, that's that's kind of fun. But data have really been a game changer, and that we no longer rely on facility reported staffing amounts for that two week look back period. Now we have these really rich data that are thought to be both more accurate, but also we can track staffing on a day to day basis. And we can also look at who's uh, entering uh, the facility as a new staff member and who's actually leaving. So it's a much better measure of staffing and it's a much richer measure of staffing than we had previously.
0: So you're a co-author on two papers that use these data for very different uh, purposes. And I'm just gonna take them up one at a time because they really are so different, but it's it's good to understand why we're now able to do these analyses that we couldn't do before. So the first one's looking at therapies provided. This is sort of the post-acute story. As you said, someone leaves a hospital, They're coming to the nursing home, hopefully, for not terribly long, but the thing that's going to get them out is to get the right therapies to get them back uh, functioning. So this paper looked at a change in payment, and tell us a little bit about the old way of paying, the new way of paying, and what you thought that might, what the implications of that might have been.
1: Sure. So this paper looks at the patient-driven payment model, or as we've been calling it, the PDPM, which is the biggest change in how we pay for short stay skilled nursing facility services in about 20 years. Prior to this change, we largely rewarded nursing homes for doing more therapy. You received higher reimbursement when you. Provided residents with more therapy.
0: Talk about what those therapies are, because I think if you haven't been in a nursing home, you you may not have a sense of what therapy means in this context.
1: A- absolutely. So, so the two dominant types here are are physical therapy and occupational therapy. There's also some some speech and language, Alan. But the vast majority of it is PT and OT. We were seeing really high levels of uh, therapy under the old, what we call the resource utilization groups or rugs-based system. And the issue there was that when you rewarded facilities for providing lots of uh, therapy, not surprisingly, (laughs) they provided lots of therapy. And uh, we were seeing uh, basically what a lot of us thought was uh, an over-reliance, over-provision of therapy. And so this change in the PDPM shifted from paying for therapy to actually, uh, what's really fascinating, paying for medical complexity. So we no longer reward facilities for that additional uh, hour of therapy per, per week. We're now rewarding them for for admitting and caring for uh, a sicker, more medically complex patient.
0: So when you talk about these therapies, you're talking about people recovering from some episode in the hospital, uh, what are we talking about here? What what conditions, services, uh, surgeries are people likely to have had that leads them then to do their rehab in a nursing home?
1: Sure. So it's a mix of uh, surgical and medical hospitalizations that then lead to uh, the the stay at a skilled nursing facility. It can be, you know, a hip fracture, a stroke, a lower extremity joint replacement. Uh, uh, chronic uh, heart failure. There's a there's just a range of different conditions that can lead to uh, the, the need for post-acute care uh, services.
0: Okay. So I interrupted you when you were describing this change in payment, and you said it's now tied to medical complexity. What do we think the implications are of that?
1: So the implications are that Facilities should provide less therapy because they're no longer being rewarded for that therapy, and they should be taking on more medically complex residents, which means they should have more clinical staff on site. That should be the real transition, and that's exactly what we looked at in this health affairs study. What happened uh, with the uh, the new policy? Did we see a shift in personnel in these buildings? And the story is really interesting, Alan. So, uh, in terms of therapists we're observing exactly what we would expect. If you're no longer rewarding or paying for therapy, guess what? Facilities have fewer therapists on site and, and they're, we're seeing uh, nursing homes actually uh, employing fewer therapists in the, in the PBJ data. The other side of, of this, however, is, is somewhat troubling. We're not seeing an increase in uh, RNs or other clinical staff in these buildings. And, and that's, that's a little perplexing or troubling. And it obviously points towards the idea that potentially facilities are, are uh, shifting here with fewer therapies, but not actually um, having a corresponding increase in uh, the amount of, of clinical infrastructure
0: in these, in these buildings. So how would we know if they're getting it right? right? I mean, you worry that if you pay for every service, you're going to get too much. Now you're moving away from that and you worry you're going to get too little. How would we know?
1: It, it, it's a great point. Uh, I, I think ultimately we need to look at quality, and what what, what does this uh, payment system uh, suggest about about the level of quality? And so we can see a shift in inputs here. We we know that therapy is coming way down. One one implication there is that well, this is a right sizing as you suggest of therapy, and we're, we're we're now getting it right. But we need to tie that to to patient outcomes? Are, are they still uh, seeing the improvement in functioning? What about, uh, are, are we keeping them out from, from the hospital? One of the big quality measures, as you know, Alan, and Health Affairs has written, you know, authors have written a lot on this over the years, is, is readmissions and whether we can, we, when you're discharged to a skilled nursing facility, can we keep you from, from bouncing back to the hospital? Uh, that's the kind of measure that that we need to look at here. We need to look at uh, changes uh, o- over time and and your uh, your functioning as well, of course. But it, th- these kinds of measures, uh, you know, we we'll look at them down the road, and I think those are for future studies. But at least initially, I think that this paper is is just suggesting we're seeing a big shift here, and. and this is concerning on, 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 on the one side, not so much about the therapy to me, that, that was to be expected, but the lack of a corresponding increase in, in, in clinical services in these buildings, that, that's troubling to me.
0: Well, we have a lot more to talk about about quality, and we'll do that uh, after we take a quick break.
1: The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward
0: slash hpl. Before hitting the floors of Congress, health policy begins in the pages of Health Affairs. Stay up to date with the latest research and insights by subscribing to the leading Health Policy Journal. Subscribers have exclusive access to health affairs research ahead of print articles and resource pages. Subscribe today by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. And I'm back with Dr. David Grabowski with me on a health policy. We're talking about quality of care in skilled nursing facilities. Uh, before the break, we were talking about one of the papers. Let's shift our focus to the other, which looks at staff turnover. Um, you said earlier that uh, the nursing staff are sort of the, the heart and soul of the, the facility's uh, enterprise. Uh, say a little more about what we know about the role of staff turnover in assuring or or suggesting a high level of quality in a nursing home.
1: Absolutely. As I said earlier, staff are the most important factor towards predicting high quality nursing home care their experience in, in the facility, their relationship with the residents, that's incredibly important towards encouraging a high quality of care for the residents, but also a high quality of life. Uh, when I talk to residents about what they like about a, a, a nursing home, it always comes back to the staff. It always comes back to the relationship. You have staff that are constantly Ah, uh, churning through the building and and not developing those relationships, then it's hard to imagine that it's a high quality of life for for the residents. It's that kind of issue that staff experience can can really help with and prevent um, quality of care problems. A stable staff can really uh, encourage better better quality of care and better quality of life.
0: So once again, you were able to use this new data set along with your colleagues to analyze turnover. One of the things that's always funny when you see turnover rates is that they can be greater than 100%. So just for, for, for the benefit of all of those listening, explain what the turnover rate really means and why it's possible for it to be more than 100%.
1: Yeah, so and this should should not just be confusing to you, but it should be eye-opening and alarming. We observed turnover rates on average over 100%. And that means that these jobs are not just turning over over on an average more than once in a year. They they were they were actually turning over more than once. It turns out nursing homes are really challenging places to work. You're not as well compensated as you are in other healthcare settings. We know for the certified nurse aides, they make close to minimum wage, um uh, they're they're often not treated very well in these facilities, so it's potentially not a surprise that we we observe turnover at at, at the rates that we do. But this paper should be uh, really a, a call to, to to policymakers that hey, we we really need to to fix this problem. That we can't have uh, good quality care in nursing homes if we don't have a stable staff.
0: Yeah, the numbers really are eye popping, and of course these data predate COVID, and so again, this is a reminder of what what the staffing uh, model was prior to this disaster hitting the facilities. So there's some interesting findings in the paper about variation. So you've got these very high rates and they're high across staffing type, but they're quite variable by some other dimensions. Can you just say a little bit about where you see higher turnover and where you see lower?
1: Staffing turnover varied by, by the usual suspect, so to speak, that, that we looked at a lot of different characteristics in the study. And I I think I'll start with one of the most uh, kind of once again, eye popping or eye opening ones was just uh, it it varied quite a bit by the the star status of the facility. And let me explain what that means. Uh, The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has a um, website, Nursing Home Compare, where they they assign a, a star rating to every facility in the country, five being the highest, one being the lowest. We found not surprisingly that, that turnover is highest in those one star facilities and 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 uh lowest in the in the five star facilities. And this really suggests to me that maybe we wanna uh report turnover rates on nursing home compare. And that's not something CMS has done to date, but if I was going to make one one big policy recommendation out of this beyond needing to to pay staff more and treat them better, it would be let's report these rates and actually get them out to folks because there's quite a bit of variability by star status, and I think this can provide information to to consumers. You can imagine
0: the causation actually going both directions, right? In a poor quality facility, people don't the staff don't want to stay, and in a place where the staff don't stay, the quality deteriorates. The interesting thing about your thing about your suggestion is it doesn't matter what the causation direction is here. if it's just reported, that's information that's helpful in understanding the circumstances of the nursing home, regardless of whether it's cause or effect. So you can't just say well, you know it's not our fault. well, that's sort of not the point here. It's a problem. so you know there aren't a lot of uh health services researchers who focus on uh nursing homes. You are uh, a rare breed in this regard um I'm really interested in you taking us beyond these two papers, as important as they are. You already mentioned uh, one policy uh, idea here related to sharing information on staffing. You mentioned earlier readmissions as a as a greater factor in thinking about the quality of of nursing homes. You've mentioned COVID layered on top of these very weak systems, uh, but just give us a a, a little bit of the. David Grabowski view of the world. Um, money obviously would be helpful. Resources are helpful. Um, but from a broader policy perspective, what, what's it going to take for us to not just cycle through crisis after crisis around uh, the quality of care in nursing homes?
1: Yeah, I, I hope that this uh, pandemic uh, causes us to, to rethink how we how we Finance, pay and deliver nursing home services in this country I, I don't think the lesson from the pandemic was that we had really poor infection control that that's probably true, but if that's the only lesson that we draw i I, I think we we really missed an opportunity here because it, it's clear that the nursing home system, as we discussed earlier, was broken pre pandemic, and I think these papers hope helped us. To, to, to show that. I do think we need to fix the, the payment system and, and the financing system. We have this both uh, low payments in, in Medicaid, but also this fragmentation. And in, in, we've been talking about these two different payers, Medicare and Medicaid. I like to say, Alan, you would. I have students ask, why did we set this up with Medicare paying short stay and Medicaid paying on the long stay? And why did we think that was a good idea? And I said, I, as, as you know well from your work over the years on Medicaid, that, that was an accident. That was a complete uh, accident that we ended up with this fragmented system. Nobody would ever design it this way. We need to harmonize the, those two different parts of the system, pay a rate that's more commensurate with the costs bo- across both of those sides. And then actually, I think, change where the dollars flow underneath. Uh, uh these payers and that that gets to the staffing side that we've been talking how do we get more dollars into the pockets of those of those caregivers how do we build a stronger workforce how do we encourage more clinical services in in, in these in these buildings I, I think there's some interesting models there as well that that, that can help and, and and i think the uh, the pdpm paper is suggestive of that that yes we need to change how we pay but how do we make certain that, that the the right set of clinical services are are there in the building. And then I think the final point I'd make, we actually did a health affairs blog recently on this, on accountability. Like we need greater transparency as to where those dollars are flowing and who's actually getting them. And if we want to, it's one thing for us to to say, you know, we need to put more dollars in the pockets of these caregivers to decrease turnover. It's another thing to make certain that they kind of work their way through the system. And so we we need increased transparency and accountability in addition to fixing the payment and financing system and fixing the, the, the delivery system underneath it.
0: So I know this is a ridiculously complex topic, but I just want to spend one more moment on that last item. You've mentioned that for profit, uh, has some indicators of lower quality, which means there's money to be made. If you just pay more and that money goes to the wrong place, it doesn't do anyone any good. So, and you mentioned transparency, but beyond that, is there a way for policymakers to feel confident if they're going to put more money into this system, that it's going to end up at, at the point of patient care?
1: We have a couple of different mechanisms right now to kind of follow the money, if you will. The first is just the cost reports, and those are well-utilized. I mentioned MedPack earlier. Uh, they're, they're constantly looking at margins. Uh, we know there's a lot of uh, issues with with the cost reports, but at least at a high level, that's one way to track it. It would be great to, to do that in a more detailed way. And I would really encourage the the GAO or others to really, we need some forensic kind of accounting here to really dig into these numbers and make certain they're right. The other place where we see leakage is on the ownership side. And you mentioned for-profit and We've had, and this could get way more complicated, so I'll keep it at a very high level. But we've seen a lot of entry of private equity, other uh, sort of complicated ownership structures in this space. And there's a lot of related parties, and there's there's concern that the dollars aren't always getting into the staying in the building, if you will, but kind of leaking out to these other parts of these organizations. We've also, uh, I, I don't want to get too far. Into, there, there's a data set, and we've actually published on it in Health Affairs before. the the PECOS data, which are ownership data data used to kind of track these arrangements much like the cost reports um uh, i i think it was it was helpful but we still don't have a perfect sense of everything and so i do think that there there's there's work to be done and this is a wonky point but i I'll, I'll make it this is health affairs i i i do think vesting in better cost reports and ownership data such that we can kind of follow the money uh is, is really important here. It's it's easy to say greater transparency, greater accountability, but uh we have those tools. We just don't they're 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 not uh quite up to the task yet.
0: Well, I really appreciate you spending some time on these complex matters, uh taking apart two studies and and offering your broader observations. Unfortunately, this is an issue that's going to be with us for quite a while. I hope you're right that we come out of COVID. With some better understanding of the importance of change. But we have had nursing home scandals every few decades for quite a while, and uh, we tend to fix one problem and leave a lot of others behind. So it's great to have your voice in this. Uh, Dr. Grabowski, David, my friend and colleague, uh, thanks for spending some time with me on A Health policy. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health policy health policy is produced by health affairs the leading journal for health policy research the team behind the show includes patty sweet jeff byers julia vivolo sarah kolk and sue ducat like the show subscribe to a health policy on apple podcast spotify stitcher google or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts thanks for listening and have a great morning day or evening